Hey, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. And this week, we'll bring you part two of a two-part show with farmer, anarchist, organiser and author Eric McBay, who's being interviewed by Burse from The Final Straw Radio about his book, Full Spectrum Resistance. And if you missed part one of this show, you can listen back to it at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters, where McBay outlines various aspects of full spectrum resistance in building social movements by using historical examples of successful movement building. And today, in this concluding episode, part two, McBay and Burse examine why single-issue movements aren't conducive to full-spectrum resistance in the struggle for climate justice, as well as some intersectional movements that have been successful in this regard. And McBay also reflects on his brief time with the Deep Green Resistance Movement and why their transphobic Rad Femme policies forced him to leave. And this was back in 2012, for those of you who are not familiar with that rather unfortunate history, which remains a pertinent example of what not to do when you're trying to build a successful full-spectrum social movement. And I also just want to add that today's audio has been sourced with thanks from The Final Straw Radio at thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org. So I guess shifting gears back to like questions of wider approaches towards resisting ecological change, over the last couple of years, there have been a few single-issue groups that have garnered a lot of headlines and gained some sort of recognition and interplay with mainstream media, with governments. And I'm thinking of uh, 350.org, Sunrise Movement, and Extinction Rebellion. And I'm wondering what your full-spectrum approach towards resistance sort of use the efficacy or the impact of their approaches towards ecological struggle? Because I know that there were some critiques definitely in the UK about Extinction Rebellion, specifically like the leadership weeding out people who are wanting to bring up questions around not only ecological devastation, but also around racism and around the existence of industrial capitalism and its impact on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a big problem. I think that you can't really address climate change without talking about capitalism. You can't address climate change without talking about racism. In general, the big liberal movements against climate change or the big liberal organizations have failed. Partly for that reason, partly because they're not they're not looking at the root problems. They're not radical organizations, right? They're not going to the root of the issue. And so they're not going to be able to use the tactics that will resolve it. I think at this point, companies like Shell Oil and, you know, a variety of petroleum companies were very aware of climate change going back to the 1960s. I mean, they had more extensive research at that point into climate change than the general public. Organizations that have fought against offshore drilling, for example, even in the 1980s, oil companies like Shell are already building their oil rigs with taller legs in order to compensate for the sea level rise they expect to see. So the issue is not that those in power 
are totally ignorant of climate change. It's that they're making a lot of money from climate change, and they think with all of the money they are making that they can deal with the consequences for themselves personally, although not for everyone else. And so that's a huge problem. And something like climate change, I think those in power have felt very isolated from, especially in, in more northern countries. So that's one of the reasons that just appealing to the good sensibilities of those in power is not going to succeed. And maybe I'll speak mostly about Extinction Rebellion, because when I was doing my book tour last year and traveled from coast to coast in Canada, I ended up doing workshops about direct action and movement strategy for a lot of different Extinction Rebellion groups here. The people who have participated in those events have been very committed and strongly motivated. They understand that it really is an emergency, but they don't always have a lot of history in kind of activism or they don't have as much movement experience in some of the other groups that I've worked with, which can be good and bad. In a lot of the liberal left, the reason that groups keep failing to address the climate crisis is because there's kind of a standard issue dogma about how we need to convince governments to change and ask politely and so on. And that's really a dead end. So I think for people new to a movement or getting newly active, they are potentially more open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. But I think that the Extinction Rebellion kind of movement in general has not done a very good job of, of including the needs of indigenous communities and has not done a good job of including the needs of communities of color. And in particular, I think we see that in the relationship between Extinction Rebellion and the police. The kind of official line from XR in the UK is that you're supposed to have a good relationship with the police. You're supposed to go to the police in advance of an action and let them know what's going to happen. And, you know, as a direct action organizer myself and on many different issues, that sounds <laughs> absolutely ridiculous for a lot of reasons. One of which is that you lose the element of surprise, which is one of the key strategic advantages that smaller resistance movements need to have. But also because if you go and try to cozy up to the police or try to expect them to give you good treatment because you're bringing them a, a cake or something, that is really kind of a white-focused thing to do, right? And that ignores the long-standing grievances of Black and Indigenous communities in particular because of the violent treatment that they've experienced at the hands of police. That's been a real weakness of Extinction Rebellion. And other climate justice movements will need to address that in order to succeed. Another challenge to Extinction Rebellion has been that they still are kind of assuming that if they make a strong enough argument that those in power will change their behavior. Movements that have succeeded in, in overturning deeply unjust systems in the past, they have been able to build up communities of resistance. They've been able to build up movements that can direct the changes that need to happen and movements that are led by the people who are affected. In climate justice, that means, you know, we really need to highlight the voices of indigenous communities. We need to highlight the voices of communities of color in the global south. And if we don't do that, 
not only is it morally wrong and a moral failing, it's going to be a strategic failing as well, because we're not going to have the experience and the perspective we need at the table to create movements that will win and to create strategies that will win. The most exciting movements that I see around climate justice are being led by communities of color, are being led by indigenous communities, and that are incorporating people from a lot of different backgrounds, but keeping in mind that it's not an option to fail here. It's not an option to say, oh, the government should reduce emissions, and if they don't, I guess, oh, well, we'll go back to what we're doing. We actually really have to commit ourselves to to winning this struggle. And I think a lot of affluent white communities, because they are insulated from the effects of climate change, at least so far, they don't have that same motivation. They don't have that same drive to win. They don't have that same genuine sense, I think, maybe of, of desperation even. And so for them, the risk of getting arrested a few times maybe feels like a bigger risk than the risk of the entire planet being destroyed. I think the calculus of risk for indigenous communities is often different, which is why we see them taking so much leadership, like in, in the case of the Wet'suwet'en. So there's the example of the Wet'suwet'en in terms of not only a sovereignty issue, but also the ecological impacts and the solidarity that they're offering to the world by trying to blockade the extraction and eventual burning into the atmosphere of, I believe, the tar sands, right, from Alberta. And then skipping to a not specifically ecological movement, the black leadership and leadership of color in the movement for black lives and the movement against white supremacist violence and police violence that sparked off with George Floyd's assassination, but also has spread around the world because anti-blackness is so endemic in Western civilization. I'm wondering if there's any other examples of current movements, particularly around ecological justice, that you feel inspired by that are led by communities of color and frontline communities. In Canada in particular, but all over, we have seen many different movements that are indigenous-led. I think that's often the movements that I end up working with or supporting. The Dakota Access Pipeline is another example of a movement that has been indigenous-led and has been very successful. I think around the world, I see a lot of hope in organizations like La Via Campesina, the International Movement of Peasants and Small Farmers, which is a very radical movement that looks to overturn not just fossil fuel emissions, but also capitalism in general that looks to create fundamentally different relationships between people and the planet and to create community relationships. I think that sort of thing is really exciting. And I think when you look at food and farm based movements, there's a lot of mobilization potential there because food, like climate, is one of those commonalities between people. It's common ground. Everyone has to eat every day. And so I'm very excited about the, the tangibility that movements around food, like La Via Campesina, have the potential to lead to. I think there are a lot of migrant worker and, and, well, and migrant justice movements as well that really understand the connection between climate and justice in a way that a lot of liberal movements don't. I also think that a lot of the really effective movements and groups that are led by people of color, 
They're often more local kind of environmental justice movements. They are not necessarily as big or as well known. And they sometimes don't want to be, right? I mean, they're not trying to kind of mimic the corporate structure. They're not trying to become a gigantic NGO. And I would encourage people to look for those movements that are close to you, to look for those movements that are led by communities of color and, and that are led by indigenous people and to try to connect with them and to support them. And if that's not the work that you're doing already, how does that work connect and how can these movements help to support each other and to develop a shared understanding and a shared uh, analysis of what's needed for action? You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. So people who are also familiar with her work are going to be familiar with the fact that you co-authored a book called Deep Green Resistance some years back. And DGR, besides being a, a book, is also an organization or a movement, a call out for a movement. But I know that you've left DGR. You have made public statements about why you have left Deep Green Resistance. But I would wonder if you could reiterate those right here and talk about the group and like why you came to leave it. Sure. So... When writing Deep Green Resistance, what I really wanted to do was help people to understand the climate emergency and to understand better some of the tactics that would be required to deal with it. I do think now versus 10 years ago that there's a much greater understanding that we are in a climate emergency and that more effective action is called for. It was, it was really a fairly short period that I was participating in that in kind of the first few months. Because unfortunately, what happened when, you know, groups started to organize and people started wanting to get together for kind of trainings and conferences, my co-authors became very transphobic. There were, you know, people who were asking very reasonably, oh, can I use the correct bathroom when I come to this event? And they would say no. And, you know, it reminds me a lot of what's been happening with J.K. Rowling recently and that instead of kind of responding to this critique or instead of responding to people's concerns about this, they really doubled down in a way that made it impossible for me to keep working with them or to keep working with that organization. I'm someone who is fully in support of trans rights and trans inclusion. And I think that their anti-trans attitudes were really detestable and really destructive, in part because, you know, a lot of experienced organizers who had been getting connected to the organization left after that, totally understandably. So it was really disappointing and, and heartbreaking. And I think that the choice that they made basically destroyed the potential of that organization to be effective, to be kind of a viable movement organization, because it was such a toxic attitude. And I believe that in general, it's good to give people a chance to change their opinions or to learn from their mistakes because there's no perfect organization. There's no perfect movement, right? There has to be potential for growth and for improvement. There has to be potential for everyone to kind of take feedback and learn. But at the same time, if it's clear that someone is, is not going to do that, then I'm, I'm not going to keep working with them because it's not a good use of my energies and it's not and I don't want to be connected with 
an organization that's going to be transphobic or that's going to endorse any other kind of, of oppression, right? So it was a very disappointing experience in a lot of ways, but I think there's still a lot of valuable content in that book, in the book Deep Green Resistance. I think it still had an, an, an impact in beneficial ways in that it helped in some communities or in some subcultures to accelerate an understanding of the climate emergency. It's just disappointing that that was the outcome. I think that hopefully it will be a lesson for other activists in the, in the future and for other organizations to really, from the very beginning of your organization, to set out some much clearer ground rules and clearer points of unity about anti-oppression that everyone will agree on. I think a lot of movements or organizations can emerge out of kind of an ad hoc approach, can kind of coalesce together. And I think it's really important to pause and make sure that you're on the same page about everything <laughs> before putting in too much effort, before putting in too much commitment. So besides the transphobia, another critique that's come to the DGR approach that, that was sort of laid down in the book was a valorization, maybe not in all instances, but in some instances of like a vanguard or like a military command structure, which in a military scenario in like combat zones, I've heard it, like I've heard anarchists talk about like, yes, it makes sense to have a clear lines of communication, someone who's maybe elected into that position for a short period of time and who is recallable, be a person that will make decisions on behalf of whatever like group is in an activity. Is that an effective approach towards organizing ecological resistance? On what scale is that an effective or appropriate model for decision making? And is there a conflict between concepts of leadership versus vanguard command structure? Sure. I don't think that we should be having military style command structures. Part of the critique that I was trying to create, speaking for myself, was that consensus is not always the ideal decision-making structure for every single situation. And I think, especially in the early 2000s, in a lot of anarchist communities, there was this idea that consensus is the only approach. And if you don't believe in always using consensus, then you're kind of an authoritarian. And I think that's really an oversimplification. I think consensus it's very good for a lot of situations, right? It's good for situations where you have a lot of time. It's good for situations where people have a similar level of investment in the outcome of a decision or where people have a similar level of experience, um, perhaps. But consensus has some flaws as well. And I think one of them is that, you know, if you have a group of say, mostly white people and a handful of people of color who are trying to make a consensus-based decision about something that has to do with racism, then you're not necessarily going to get the outcome that you want, because that is a system that can downplay inequalities in experience that are real, right? Some people have more experience of racism or, or systems of oppression, and consensus doesn't always kind of incorporate that. So we were talking a lot about the Wet'suwet'en example earlier in the Wet'suwet'en struggle. And when settler allies have gone to Wet'suwet'en territory to help, they actually have to basically sign off and say, yeah, I'm fine to accept indigenous leadership for the duration of my time there. And if I don't want to accept it anymore, then I can leave. 
I prefer to work in consensus situations most of the time because that's a way of making sure that you're incorporating a lot of different perspectives. But I think when you do have a very tight timeline, you know, it makes sense, as you mentioned, to consider electing people or to have people who are maybe on a rotating basis kind of in charge for that action. I think that there's room for a lot of different approaches in terms of decision making. And like our tactics, our form of decision making has to be matched to our situation and to our goals. So it feels like when talking about ecological devastation and like the precarity of where we're at as a species, in particular, again, in Western civilization, that there's this misanthropic approach towards looking at problems and solutions in terms of human caused ecological unbalance. And people talk about there being too large of human populations or historically that sorts of numbers game kind of leads to a eugenicism position that puts blame on poor people or indigent people and darker skinned people as they tend to be more marginalized in the settler colonial societies in this parts of the world. And there's often a presumption affiliated with that, that we as a species are alien to or above the rest of the world, that we're not a part of nature, that we're separate from it. Can you talk about why it's important to challenge like sort of the fundamental weaknesses of the misanthropic approach that looks at us as outside of the natural world and how shifting that question actually allows us to make the changes that will be required for us to possibly survive this mess? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I understand why people get frustrated with humanity, but I think both from a philosophical perspective and from an organizer's perspective, Blaming humans in general for the problem really kind of obscures the root of the emergencies that we're facing, and it obscures the things that we need to do. So I think some of what you've talked about, it's really different forms of human exceptionalism, right? There are some people who don't care about the environment at all, who are human exceptionalists who think humans can do whatever we want. We're immune to the same kind of rules that other organisms follow. We're immune from the effects of the weather or the planet or the economy. And of course, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, we have at the other end people who really believe a different form of human exceptionalism and believe that humans are doomed to do bad things, that we're kind of doomed to destroy the planet. And I don't think either of those things are true. I think, you know, if you look at the history of humanity and our immediate ancestors for millions of years. We managed not to destroy the planet or even put the planet in peril. It's really a fairly new phenomenon that we've been causing that specific societies and especially specific people in specific societies have been causing this level of destruction. And that destruction is not really about population. It's about wealth. If you look at someone like Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, who's bringing in, what, $12 billion a day that he's adding to his his fortune, $12 billion in profit every day, compared with someone living in, say, Bangladesh, who's barely emitting any carbon dioxide at all. There's a huge disparity. And I think that People like Jeff Bezos would probably be happy to have us say, oh, well, the problem is just humanity. The problem is we're going to destroy the planet. And I guess we have to build rocket ships and go to other planets because that's the only way to solve this problem. Whereas really it's about wealth and capitalism. It's that people in very wealthy countries and especially the richest people in those countries are doing most of the ecological damage. 
and who also have the power to stop doing that ecological damage if they chose and if they were willing to give up some of the money that they're making every day. So as an organizer, one of the reasons that I avoid that misanthropic approach is because it just doesn't give us a lot of options, right? Like if humans inherently are the problem, then do we just wait for humans to go extinct? I mean, I've certainly heard people say, oh, well, I guess the earth is going to come back into balance. So, you know, that kind of line of thinking. But for me as an organizer who works on many different issues from prison to gender equality, to, you know, farm worker issues, that's not a good enough solution. It's not good enough to just throw your hand up and say, oh, what can we do? It's human nature, because it doesn't address the root power imbalances. And it also doesn't give us any models for how to live better, because that's also what the misanthropy kind of obscures. It obscures the fact that the majority of indigenous societies for the majority of history have lived in a way that has been beneficial for the land around them. And there are still many traditional communities and many societies that manage to live without destroying their environment and destroying the land. And so I think, you know, if we say, oh, well, humans are just the problem, then that kind of frees us of the burden of, of learning more and actually changing our lifestyle, maybe, or changing our approach. I think it's really important that we look at the root of the problems that we're facing, which in terms of climate and many other things is really about capitalism, colonialism, white supremacy, patriarchy, these overlapping systems of inequality. And I think, again, the solutions that we need to find have to do with looking to those communities that have been living in a better way, whether that's indigenous communities or communities that have struggled for genuine equality, genuine racial equality, gender equality, all of these things. And those are the kinds of communities that can help us to not just survive this climate emergency, but after that and now to have communities to have societies that are actually worth living in, that are fair and inclusive, and where people aren't constantly in this competitive struggle and on the edge of precarity in this, you know, dog-eat-dog -dog situation. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And today on the show, we heard part two of a two-part interview with farmer, anarchist, organiser and author Eric McBay being interviewed by Burse from the Final Straw Radio about his book, Full Spectrum Resistance. And this audio was sourced with thanks from the Final Straw Radio at thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org. And I just want to add that the crew at Final Straw Radio produce a really fantastic weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show and podcast, which is well worth checking out and supporting. And you can find the podcast for part one and two of today's show at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. 
Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. So that's all for this week, but don't forget to tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at commonslibrary.org. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.